0: If you'd like to follow the reading, you can find it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 to 31. Now the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, "'Why this waste of perfume?' It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were there reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same.
1: Good evening. Let's have a prayer. Lord Jesus, as we begin to see the story of the passion, we pray that you will touch our hearts and reach our wills and change our lives. Amen. You're at the seaside, sunbathing on the sand. And after a day like this, it's not too hard to imagine. And then you get up to explore what lies around the corner of the cliff. And you notice a deep cave, and you go in, and you're immediately aware of cold and dark. That is what we find in today's passage, and I hope you'll follow it with me. Um, there's a tremendous amount in this passage. Let's have a look at it together. You see, in chapter 12, Jesus is in the sunshine. He's teaching with immense popularity. He's handling questions from the opposition with consummate skill. In chapter 13, he goes round the corner and he explores the future, the fate of Jerusalem and of the end of the world. And then in 141 he enters the cave. That story now that starts in 141 leads to his death. It's here that the story of the passion abruptly begins. And you notice the change of climate at once. It's dark. It's cold, and everywhere there is secrecy and intrigue. In verse 1 of chapter 14, you've got the opposition seeking some sly, stealthy way to arrest Jesus, but they're terrified to do it at the Passover, as there might be a riot amongst the big crowds. And then we find Judas. He's always called one of the twelve. In the New Testament, and there it is in verse 12. Judas, one of the twelve, the horror of his betrayal dominates the early Christians. They can never forget it, and uh, Judas is here um, slinking off to betray his master and friend for the paltry sum of a month's wages. Jesus, too, has been um, getting to work secretly, briefing a sympathizer to uh, lend his room for the forthcoming Passover, and indicating the person's identity by saying that he's going to stand out in the crowd uh, because he's a man carrying a water jar. That was usually the job of the women. And the mystery grows deeper with Jesus' words at the supper about his body and his blood. And it continues as the little band uh, slips out of the house and round the corner of the temple, down and over the brook Kedron and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. It's a dark picture. But sometimes in a cave, you get flashes of light when the sun has been able to penetrate. Maybe there's a crack in the the roof of the cave, or maybe the light gets reflected uh, from outside through the mouth of the cave. It gets reflected over the wall, the smooth wall, and there are three amazing flashes of light in the dark story that we have before us tonight. Amazing self-sacrifice, amazing fulfillment, and amazing reactions. Let's have a look at the amazing self-sacrifice first. Wherever you look in world religions, and it's worth noting in these days when we're invited to conflate all religions into the vague faith community. Wherever you look, you will never find a God prepared to suffer and to die in excruciating agony in order to win back a rebel world. You won't find it anywhere else, it's totally unique. But this is our God, that's what he's like. Jesus had lived with this costly thought that he was going to give his life for the world. He'd lived with it for years. Three times in Mark's Gospel, he had expressed this terrifying conviction. That he was heading for being lacerated, for being crucified, for being totally rejected. Three times you get it. Just imagine how terrifying to have that thought day and night in your personality. And now we see it coming to a head. The awesome dread of it all. She has anointed my body for the burial. A 30-year-old man doesn't normally speak like that. And then Judas betrays him. One of those who dips in the common uh, pot with me to have some food is going to betray me. Breaking the strongest of taboos in the ancient world that you never betrayed anybody that you ate with. And then the talk of his body and blood given for the disciples in verse 22. And the shepherd suffering violence to protect the sheep, verse 27. The disciples all running away in that same verse. And then the collapse of his supposed rock man, Peter, who deny, who's going to deny that he ever knew Jesus. And then in the next agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll be looking at next week, you find the depth of the darkness that Jesus has to face. And we haven't even got to the trials yet. We haven't even got to the whipping and the manacles and the nailed hands and feet. All this lay in the future. We have here... Just a glimpse of all the anguish leading up to it. How he loved us. You never know how much somebody loves you until you see what they're willing to sacrifice for you. What sufferings they're prepared to endure for you. Well, here we see the supreme sacrifice. It's drawing near. We see the darkest pit of innocent suffering reaching up to consume the Saviour. And we can just imagine how he felt about it. You know, that tells me two things. It tells me, first, that the Lord loves you and me enormously. Do remember that when the road is rough and steep and you're feeling that nobody loves you and it's a really bad day. Remember that. He was prepared to go to that cross for you. It shows how much he loves you. And the other thing is how valuable you are to God if he is prepared to pay such a price to win your allegiance. Sometimes we feel we haven't got a very uh, prestigious fame or a good job or, um, you know, any of these other things that people regard highly. And we think, well, we're not terribly valuable. That thought comes from the devil. You can stand tall in the light of the amazing sacrifice that the Son of God made to reach you personally. That's wonderful. You're valuable. Okay. Amazing sacrifice. Let's have a look at the second thing, the second shaft of light that perhaps comes through the the roof of this cave. Verse 27 A quotation, Jesus said, You will all become deserters, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, quite often in the New Testament, when you have one verse like this, it's a little hint. It says, ladies and gentlemen, look at the context of the original and you'll see lots there for your interest. The one verse is the pointer to what he wants us to look at. And this single Old Testament verse invites us to explore Zechariah 13 from which it comes. This is perhaps not the moment to do so. You can do it it later. But it makes awesome background reading for the passion narrative. For it speaks of a time when God is going to open a fountain of cleansing for sin and for uncleanness. It refers to a terrible blow against my shepherd, the man who stands next to me, says the Lord Almighty. It speaks of the scattering of the sheep. And after those sheep are scattered, they become God's new people. Verses seven to nine of that chapter. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. All this and more, predicted many centuries before, comes true in the Passion of the Messiah. And that, I think, is sure evidence that the Bible is no ordinary book. The Lord stands alongside the human authors, and he guides them in their writings. They could never have dreamed this up. That's one fulfillment we see. Here's another one. It takes us back to the Exodus, the time when the uh, Jewish people were rescued from the bondage and the death penalty for for, for the eldest child that beset them in Egypt. It takes us back, in fact, to Exodus 12 and 13, which are the seminal chapters about the Passover. And when Jesus speaks of his body and his blood, as he does in this passage, they clearly form a word pair. And in Aramaic, there is only one pair that will do, bisra udema. These are sacrificial words, the body broken, the blood shed. They refer to the body and the blood of the slaughtered sacrificial animal. And Jesus is clearly pointing forward to his sacrificial death so soon to follow. Mark has already told us that it's Passover time. In the very first verse, he's given us the clue to what these marvelous words mean. And here Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb, slain to avert the judgment of God from the homes of all who have painted the blood of their lamb above the doorpost. The rabbis had an inkling of this. They said, by the atoning power of this blood, they were redeemed in Egypt, and they will be redeemed In the days of the Messiah. Jesus anticipates the the mighty atoning force of his sacrifice on Good Friday, so soon to come. He sees it as the fulfillment of that final rescue to which the original Passover looked forward. And in this marvelous communion meal, he gives them a share in the benefits of that sacrifice which he would make for their redemption. It's amazing fulfillment of the Passover. But actually, it cuts much deeper. Because the Passover in Egypt had three main aspects. It spoke of deliverance from the land where they were in bondage, where they were uh, suffering death. And they were rescued through trust in the blood of the Lamb above their doorposts deliverance from bondage and death. It spoke also of nourishment for the struggles and the battle ahead. They were instructed to feast on that lamb, to roast it and feast it and finish it that night. It was to give them strength for the journey. And in that first Passover, there was a pointer to the land of promise that still lay in the future, It wasn't enough to get out of Egypt. There was a promised land to come. And every subsequent Passover had those three strands. And Jesus fulfilled them all. The Christian Passover, the communion, looks back to the sacrifice which the Lamb of God made once and for all upon that cross. It looks up to the Lamb of God to nourish them with his very being in the communion as they continue a long life's journey and it looks forward to the heavenly banquet in God's promised land the ultimate joy of the redeemed in heaven you could never have imagined a fulfillment like that out of Exodus 12 and 13 but God brought it about. It's an amazing fulfillment. Now obviously we can't in the time that we have tonight go deeply into the mystery of the Lord's Supper. But notice two things, the bread and the wine. Bread is very important in the Passover ritual. The head of the family said, in the Passover service and indeed still says in the Jewish Passover service today, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Imagine, just imagine the electric atmosphere when Jesus stood among his distressed and perplexed disciple, his sort of family as they were, and he broke the bread. He used a different form of words, words which must have pierced them to the heart. This is... And they were waiting for the normal formula, and they didn't get it. This is my body, broken for you. The other astounding thing was his words over the cup of wine. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. There are at least seven covenants in the Bible. Agreements between God and Israel. Solemn agreements as if God couldn't be trusted so as to give great faith to um, the recipients. All of these covenants are sealed with blood. Except one. And that is the covenant that is promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The new covenant, offering forgiveness, intimacy with God, and his spirit to come into their very beings. Those three things are the characteristics of the new covenant. And there is no mention of blood. Because the only blood powerful enough to seal that new covenant was still to come. It was the life of Jesus poured out on that terrible cross. His blood makes the new covenant possible. It makes it firm and solid and unbreakable. Now, isn't that an amazing fulfillment? Amazing sacrifice, amazing fulfillment. Okay. How shall we respond to Jesus, the fulfiller of so much, the one who loved us so greatly? How shall we respond? Well, some very interesting responses in this chapter. In the first verse, you read of the chief priests, and there are people today who, like those chief priests, want to get rid of Jesus, if only they can, get lost, write him out of the story. They're very hostile to him, and there's plenty of those in Oxford. Some, like Judas, um, betray Jesus. We don't know why Jude, uh, Judas did it, there have been lots of guesses. Maybe money is the cause. And St. John's Gospel hints that he loved money more than he loved Jesus. People do today, church people do. Disappointment is possible. Jesus did not fulfill Judas's expectations of a mighty um, Messiah coming in and smashing the Romans and setting up a new theocracy. Disappointment. And many Christians are disappointed with their Christian lives and they tend to pack up. Uh, other Christians make sex or power or self-centeredness the ways in which they can betray the one they claim to love. Betrayal is one of the responses in this chapter. And then some, like the disciples, desert Jesus. Verse 26, they are all going to run away, and they did. And you know today, when opposition or unwelcome publicity strikes, we so often do not have the courage to confess Jesus Christ among our friends and our work colleagues. Indeed, we're embarrassed to mention the name of Jesus outside church on Sunday. It's safe there, but not in the week time. It's very sad. He must be very disappointed when his followers are ashamed of him. And then you get, you get Simon Peter. With incredible arrogance, saying, even though all become deserters, I will not. And he protested, "Ah, even if I die with you, I'm not going to let you down. Incredible big head, wasn't he? And I think some of us are big heads. We think I've been a Christian for a good many years. The old enemy, old Nick, is not going to bowl me over now no, thank you very much, I'm tough, I can cake it. And when we make a claim like that, there is a banana skin on the road just in front of us. And down we go, like Peter did, three times denying that he ever knew his Lord. Those are four of the reactions that we find in this chapter to Jesus. But there is a fifth one, It is indeed a lovely um, streak of light coming into that dark cave. It's the story of the woman with the flask of beautiful perfume. It's in verse verse 3 and following. This woman worshipped Jesus. (laughs) This woman did a beautiful thing for Jesus. This woman would not hold back from Jesus the most precious thing that she had. This nard stuff was very expensive. It came all the way from India. And this narrow-necked flask and the way you opened it was by just breaking the glass and so it could, you could never pour a bit of it out, you had to pour the whole lot out. And she poured the whole lot out, over Jesus. This was what we would call a family heirloom. She was parting with the equivalent of her life savings. This was her retirement money. And she poured it out on Jesus, complete devotion to Jesus. That's the only fitting response, isn't it, to the good news. Oh, people will say, That it's a waste. They always say that when talented people become clergy or missionaries. What a waste, they say. But nothing done for Jesus is a waste. She's done a beautiful thing. And I love that phrase, she has done what she could. Isn't that a fantastic commendation? And Jesus said, for somebody who does what they could, that's going to be part of the good news wherever it goes all over the world. I wonder if Jesus could say that of you or of me. She has done, he has done what he could. We can't do what we want to do, but we can do what we can. She has done what she could. That's how I want to respond to the Savior who went to the cross for me. Don't you? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this brilliant streak of light in a very dark chapter. This woman who knew herself to be forgiven, who knew herself to be loved, and in response poured out her most precious thing upon you, Lord Jesus, please take the devotion of our hearts. Please increase that love and devotion. Please make us willing to put you in the number one spot, to hold nothing back from you. And we know you'll think it's a beautiful thing. We know you'll say, she has done what she could. Oh Lord, may that be true of members of this church. May it be true of me to the glory of your name. Amen.